Well, it's good to see you um, for the second service this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Steve. Um, I'm married to Tammy. We help lead this thing we call Central Vineyard. Uh, we're a church that exists in a couple of different locations across our county. Uh, and, and so we're really excited about what God's doing. If you are here for the first time, it is just really wonderful to welcome you amongst us. We know kind of walking into environments like this one can be a little bit scary. So well done uh, for being here uh, and being part of what we're doing this morning. Uh, this morning, we are launching a brand new teaching series, um, which kind of coincides with today. Um, one of the things we're trying to do this year as a church is follow uh, the church calendar to the best that we can uh, in the least liturgical way possible. And so um, uh, this Sunday is Pentecost uh, Sunday. Uh, and Pentecost Sunday really just sets the scene, I suppose, for this journey that we're going to be going on over the next few weeks. We're going to be unpacking uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And so uh, exploring what that means and also hopefully having an opportunity to practice some of that uh, together as well. And so that's the journey uh, that we're going to be on. Uh, Pentecost can mean different things in different traditions, different church traditions can emphasize different aspects of what Pentecost is about. Um, for some, in some traditions, the day of Pentecost is all about power. Uh, it's all about the power of the Holy Spirit being released upon the church. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And so there is this sense that today, uh, this day Pentecost, is a day about the power of God being unleashed. Other traditions of the church would say uh, that Pentecost is all about sanctification. Uh, it, it's about change. It's about transformation, becoming more like Jesus. And, and the truth is, we need both those realities, don't we? We need the power of God at work in our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we also need to live lives of transformation. Uh, we need to experience change. And we, and we love to experience the blessings and the fruits and the gifts of encountering the Holy Spirit gives us. There's also this idea that Pentecost really signifies the, the birth of the church, that the events of the first Pentecost uh, that came about through a promise that Jesus made and through the obedience of his disciples to wait gave birth to this thing we call the church, the church is born. That as, they, as, they, as we gather in environments like this and, and, and millions of other followers of Jesus gather in lots of different environments today. We do that because of the events that took place on that first Pentecost uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, that's quite a profound reality, isn't it? That over 2,000 years of church history uh, were set in place because of the events of Pentecost. And you know, the day of Pentecost was a day loaded with expectation. The disciples are there. They're in, uh, uh, in Jerusalem, in the upper room, uh, waiting uh, as Jesus instructed, waiting for a promise. It tells us they waited for the gift the Father 
promised. And Jesus said to them, you know, John, John the baptizer, he baptized in water, but in a few short days, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost is this uh, moment of overwhelming expectancy. We're expecting something to happen. I wonder how expectant you are this morning. You are the 11.15 crowd, so you got up slightly later uh, than the 9.30 crowd. But how expectant did you come this morning? How expectant were you as you walked into this place? Some of you might think, you know what, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm not that expectant. And that's okay, that's, that's your starting point, that's, that's where you are right now. But I wonder what, what, what might it look like in the next 20, 25 minutes that we've got for your expectancy to rise, for your expectancy that God could do something in your midst today, that God could move in some way. What, what would it take for your expectancy to go up? And so what I want to do is I just want to, I want to pray quickly. Uh, I just want us to pray and pray for expectancy. And so all I want you to do at the end, after I'm going to pray a simple prayer, I just want you to say amen, okay? We'll get a bit Pentecostal this morning. So. Um, only, only then, okay? Um, but I just, I just encourage you to close your eyes. Um, no one's going to touch you or anything like that. Don't worry. If they do, let us know. Um, but Father, we just, um, we just welcome your presence right now, Lord. We know you're already here, and we know you're already at work. But Lord, I just pray that you would give us a fresh perspective this morning, Lord. And that, Lord, you would just increase our expectancy for you. Increase our expectancy to encounter you this morning, Lord, that we, this wouldn't be a passive moment, but this would be a, a defining moment for us this morning. Amen. Amen. Tammy and I, um, in recent months, as um, some of our responsibilities in the Vineyard family of churches has increased, we've had the opportunity to travel a little bit and just interact with a number of different uh, leaders across our nation. And uh, there is this overwhelming sense all across uh, our country that God is stirring something. Uh, everyone I speak to, I you know, kind of ask them that question, what do you think the Lord's doing? And, and a number of people just reflect that. I think God's stirring something. Something is is, is going to happen, that, that, that we're on the kind of cusp of, of something that God wants to do. And I, I really feel like for us in the coming years, um, and, uh, and, and maybe for the next decade ahead, that there is going to be some time where God, is, God wants to move in some significant ways, uh, both here locally, but across our nation. We really believe that. We really are contending for that and, and praying that God would do that. And, uh, and a part of those conversations, I, I found myself um, going back and just reflecting 
uh, on some church history and just reflecting on some of the things that God has done uh, over the years, um, what we might call awakenings or moves of the spirit or, dare I say, revival. Uh, it's kind of a dirty word sometimes. But, um, you know, the different ways that God has moved uh, in history. And as I've done that, I found a, a stirring in my own heart, some things just kind of coming to the surface. And one, one of the things I felt is just a sense of excitement. Um, that actually, as you read about the way God can just sovereignly move in a city or in a community and, and bring transformation and just and see the church become all that it's meant to be, there's, this, uh, this is exciting. This is, this is so much better than just doing ch- Sunday services. You know, this is so much better than just doing church, uh, that God is moving. Just so this sense of excitement. But in the midst of that, I've also felt a sense of frustration. A sense of frustration. You know, it's great to read about what God has done in the past. It's great to do that. And it's great to reflect on that. But what about now? What about now? What would it look like not to just read some great stories of what God did, but what, what, what would it look like to experience God move again? Uh, what, would it, what would it look like for us to see a move of God in our midst, uh, in our time? And, 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 in, and in many ways, you know, the ground around us is fertile uh, for, a, for God to move. If you just did a cursory kind of study of some of the great moves of God of the past, the great awakenings of the past, we see that many of those things, many of those moves of the Spirit came about as the culture around us seemed to be increasingly slipping into uh, darkness and hopelessness. That when, when the systems that sustain a culture uh, begin to crumble, when, when there is kind of political and financial unrest and fragility, it's often in those kinds of times that God's light comes, that the, the, the Spirit of God moves. Those times in history uh, when there's darkness and fragility, often the light of God will come, and God has moved in some amazing, sovereign ways. And that's exciting. And so, um, you know, we are in that season, aren't we? When you look around, everything feels so fragile, and it feels like there's something could happen. One of the other marks that I discovered around any move of God like that is is that um, it, it often is preceded by um, God's people en masse coming together to pray. Uh, That that, that every move of God is marked by a movement of prayer. Uh, That God calls his people in desperation to pray. And, and, uh, you know, this this initiative, Thy Kingdom Come, that we've been part of for the last 10 days, uh, is really a part of, of calling believers across the nations to pray. You know, in the last 10 days, millions, if not billions of Christians have prayed uh, for God's kingdom to come, to see him move in power. Tonight, as we gather in the market square and we bow down, we're asking for his kingdom to come, that we want to see Northampton uh, experience the fullness of his kingdom. Uh, and, and so that's what we're doing tonight, that we're, there is this sense, and I, you know, I kind of interact with a number of leaders across our town, but this sense that something is stirring, uh, 
There's something going on. Uh, God is, is calling us into something. And so as we prepare ourselves for that, as we posture ourselves uh, in, in a place of desperation towards what we think God might want to do, what might he want to say to us as a church uh, this morning, this Pentecost morning? You know, and before we spend the next few weeks, the next six or seven weeks, unpacking like spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts are and how we do those spiritual gifts, uh, before we do any of that, how might God be speaking to us now? Well, you know, I could have gone a number of different ways this morning. Um, and, and actually, uh, where, where I started preparing for this, this Sunday at the beginning of this week, um, I've kind of landed in a much different place. It went okay in the first service, so we'll give it a go now. Um, so if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to pick up in verse 8 of Ephesians 5. And it says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. One of the things that this passage kind of highlights um, to us is that it shows us uh, uh, that the church, the people of God, in some ways are called to be distinctive, that we're called to be a distinct people uh, in the world, that we're called to be light, to be children, to be children of light. Uh, and, and, and as his church, we're, we often talk about being his hands and feet in the world, don't we? We're his hands and feet to fulfill his purposes, to, to bring about his light. And in light of that, I think it's, there's no coincidence that the Greek, the Greek word for uh, church is ekklesia. Uh, and ekklesia is a compound word. It's two words that are put together. Ek uh, means out of, and kelio is a verb which means to call. And so literally that word church, ekklesia, uh, means the called out ones. Now if we was to step back into um, ancient Greece 
and um, we were to hear that word, ecclesia, it literally meant this, an assembly of people called to provide governance for a city. So a group of people called together to govern a city, um, to, to bring about peace, um, to, to see a city, to see a people flourish. It kind of sounds like a great description, doesn't it, for these people we call the church, a people called to bring light in darkness, a people called to bring, um, uh, to bring peace uh, where there is chaos, um, uh, that we are called to do, do those things so we flourish, so that people flourish, so that our city flourishes. And so that's what um, ecclesia meant in the Greek culture. But what about Roman culture? What did ecclesia mean uh, in Roman culture? And one of the things that the Roman emperor would often do is he would summon uh, the army of Rome. And uh, that was known as the Ecalio, uh, which means the call out. And what they would do is he would call his troops uh, to one place and they would assemble together. And that assembling together of the Roman army was called the Ecclesia. And, and they would gather. They would gather at the orders of the emperor and they would wait upon him for their marching orders to go and extend the kingdom of Rome. And so that word that we call church, that thing that we refer to so often, the ecclesia, is actually a borrowed word. It's a word borrowed uh, from the culture. And yet it beautifully describes this thing we know the church to be, the called out ones, the children of light, those who are to bring order where there's chaos, those who are, uh, are called to extend the kingdom wherever they go, not with weapons of power and destruction, but with weapons of love and grace and mercy. See, that's who we're called to be, isn't it? That's who the church is. That's what the local church is. Uh, there's a job for us to do. Uh, we're called into something, to be the people, as it says in that passage in Ephesians, who illuminate darkness. We shine a light on darkness. But we can't do that if we're asleep. Paul charges us in verse 14. He says, wake up, sleeper. Wake up. Rise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ will shine on you. And if there was a word that I think God might have for us as a church this morning, I think it's this one. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to rise from the dead. You know, in the very opening of the scriptures, um, the Spirit of God is the, is the Spirit that breathes life into mankind. Genesis, Genesis 2, 7, it says, The Lord, the God, formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word for breath is ruach, 
which means spirit. And, um, and it's the very spirit of God that gives life to all creation, life to mankind. And, and to be human, if you like, is to be filled with the very breath, the very spirit of God. And yet we know, don't we, we, get to the, we flip over to chapter 3 in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they walk away from the life that's been given to them. They give in to temptation. They partake in the fruit that was forbidden. And the result is they cut themselves off from God. They're banished from the garden and they step into darkness, no longer connected to the source that is God. And instead they become kings of their own kingdom. And it's a kingdom that ultimately leads to death and sorrow and pain. And the term that the, the Bible often uses um, um, to describe this shift that mankind made, uh, this choice to partake in the forbidden fruit, to turn, turn their backs on God, to, to become rulers of our own kingdom, the Bible describes this shift um, using this term idolatry. And idolatry happens when we put other things in place of God. When we give our affection, uh, our devotion, our priorities to something else above God. That's idolatry. That's what idolatry looks like. If you've got your Bible, flip over to Psalm 135. It just describes this for us really well. Psalm 135 and verse 15. It says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. You know, we kind of have to put a little bit of context to this. You know, the, one of the reasons we think idolatry isn't an issue for us is because um, we think idols are just some kind of sort of handcrafted kind of sculpture of something um, and um, you know they used to put it on the fireplace and they would bow down and worship this this idol this carved image and and somehow think that they would gain some well-being from worshiping this thing that they made and we kind of look at that and we think oh man that's just that's just crazy you know I you know <laughs> We don't do that. You know, we don't carve things out of wood or gold or silver. We, you know, we're far more sophisticated. This is the 21st century. Uh, idolatry isn't an issue for us. And so we do have to put passages like this in context. And because the, the truth is, is we all have idols. All of us have idols. We might not carve them out of material but we all have idols. We still idolize things. We can idolize things like celebrity culture. You know, I just looking at my Twitter feed and people talking about Love Island. Can I just say, it's just a pile of crap. It's just, oh my goodness me. Can anything more trashy get on telly? Um, sorry if you like that. We'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> You know, but we can be, we can be so enamored, uh, give ourselves so, so much over to this kind of celebrity culture that somehow, if I invest in this, I'm going to be equally successful. Or we can, have, we can have an idol of money. 
uh, where money becomes the be-all and end-all of our existence. We can idolize success in our jobs. Uh, we can idolize our social status, uh, you know, where we place ourselves on the ladder against other people. We can idolize our, our peer groups and, and how we're perceived. We can, we can do all sorts of things. Uh, we are good at creating idols. Would you agree? And so we can remove, we can't remove ourselves from this. We're in the thick of it. We're there too. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. We have the ability to create idols. Um, uh, we just don't necessarily carve them out of material. Uh, it says this in verse 16, that they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. And here's the key bit, nor is their breath in their mouth. And so there are these idols on the fireplace, carved out of some gold or silver. Uh, they've got eyes carved into them, and yet they cannot see your pain. They cannot see what you're going through. They cannot hear what you're crying out, what the cry of your heart is. There is no breath in them. These idols have no power to save. And you know, the idols we create are exactly the same. They have no power. They can't do anything. They don't hear the cries of your heart. They don't see the anguish. They don't respond. They have no breath in them. And in verse 18 says this, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In other words, through idolatry, we lose our breath. We lose our breath. God breathed into Adam. He breathed into humanity. The Spirit of God gave life to all of humanity. And idolatry uh, comes in and we begin to lose our breath. We lose our breath. We begin to fall asleep. We begin to spiritually die. And you know, one of the things I've noticed is that we have an enemy. Uh, we have an enemy, and we have an enemy who will do anything he possibly can to keep us asleep, to keep the church asleep. Now, I don't want to try and over-spiritualize things this morning, and, and I would probably say, say I'm a person who, who cautiously, cautiously doesn't like to over-spiritualize things. Um, but in, in, in a, a place of being cautious, I think sometimes we can under-spiritualize things as well. You know, so um, I, what I'm, I'm going to say this morning isn't like you stubbed your toe and therefore you're under spiritual attack, okay? That isn't what I'm saying. But I think there are some things going on in the life of this community uh, that we just need to name. There, there are things going on uh, where, where the, the enemy, the devil... Is causing us to sleep. And I think there's power in us naming those things. I think there's power in naming those things because when we name them, we break the power that they hold. And when we name them, we give ourselves the opportunity to respond to the Spirit of God and relinquish the hold that they have on us. 
And so I want to name four things I believe right now could be causing some of us in this community to fall asleep. Four things that I think are are playing rampant in the life of our church community, and we need to go after them. And so one area I think the enemy is at work uh, is through relational breakdown. Many of you have kind of reflected back to us how you've been experiencing uh, just loads of relational tensions, far more than just is, feels normal, uh, whether that's in your family, uh, in, in your workplace, uh, wherever it might be. Many of you have just been saying, just, just there's all this relational tension going on around me. For some of you, it's with your kids. Uh, some of you, it's, it's the, the way you and your kids are relating together, how you relate to them as parents. There's just real tension there. Things are coming in and, 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 and taking over. For some of us, it's our kids and, and what they're experiencing in school, um, just experiencing different things in their school environments. That's just so disruptive. And, you know, when we experience those kind of relational tensions, when we experience relational pain, it has a tendency, doesn't it, to just make us feel exhausted. It makes us feel exhausted. Because often when, when we're at odds with people relationally, it's all we can think about. It's all we think about. It's just like, you know. And so, and, and so we, you know, it's just so tiring. And I think some of that, some of those relational tensions that we are experiencing, it's the work of the enemy. Causing us to slumber, causing us to sleep. Another area relationally that we, we kind of see the enemy going after is our marriages. And just, and just um, loads of relational t- tension taking place in marriages. This uh, direct, work, direct work of the enemy to separate what God has brought together. And I believe we break the power of that when we talk, when we speak out, when we acknowledge the, what the work of the enemy is doing. And it might be that you're here this morning and, and, and you think, you know, that's us. That's, that's our marriage. We're experiencing those tensions. Can I encourage you just to speak out? Maybe just chat to one of the pastoral team or one of our staff team and just say, hey, you know what, that's us. We need help. We recognize the enemy's hand at work in our marriage, trying to break things down. And so I'd encourage you to speak out. And so relational breakdowns are exhausting. They're tiring. We just, you know, it just, it's, it's just hard work. Another area that I see the enemy at work is, is through disappointment. And, you know, disappointment is a real emotion. But I believe the enemy is using disappointment to rob us from life. That many of us have, have sensed a, a growing disappointment. Things didn't work out how I planned. I didn't imagine it would come to this. I, you know, and you feel so disappointed. But it actually, it's going beyond disappointment. It's become paralysis. It's become paralysis. It's, it's holding you there. It's holding you in that place. It's stopping you from moving forward, from experiencing what God has to offer. You know, the opposite to disappointment is hope. It's hope. And hope is a powerful weapon. 
It's a powerful tool. N.T. Wright, he says this, hope for the Christian is not uh, wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It's a mode of knowing, a mode within which new things are possible. Options are not shut down. New creation can happen. And some of us need to find hope again. Some of us cling on, have clung on to disappointment in fear that it's all going to go wrong. If I hope again, it's just going to go wrong again. And it's causing you to sleep. Another one I would name is apathy. Apathy. And it's that kind of, I just can't be bothered mentality. I just, you know what? And, and I, I, don't, I don't know how this one works, because I chat to a number of people, and, you know, we're a pretty driven bunch of people. Um, many of you tell, tell us about your work and things that are going on in your work situations and how you're going to do this and that, and, you know, in three years' time, we're going to take over the world and, and all these different things. You know, you're a pretty driven bunch. And yet something happens when you walk through this door. Something happens. You... People just become apathetic. It's kind of that whatever kind of culture. Have you joined a small group yet? Oh, well, I was going to get round to it, but not this term. Are you serving yet? You know what? My, my job's pretty important. I'm not sure I can serve for an hour a month. And there's this growing sense of apathy. And I think it makes no sense. It makes no sense because it doesn't match people's reality. And so it makes me think, is it all the work of the enemy? Is it the enemy at play? Is he the one causing us to sleep? And maybe it's time to wake up. Maybe it's time to wake up from our sleep. The fourth one is cynicism. And some of us just find ourselves doubting everything, doubting God's goodness, doubting um, um, what God can do can happen. And we just find our, our, our lives clouded um, and our judgment clouded with the possibility of what God could do. Uh, and, and some of you thinking, that's me. <laughs> I know that's me. And you're even cynical about being cynical. You know, it's just, it's just, I know that's me. And cynicism causes us to sleep. It causes us to fall asleep. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate to any of those four things. I know I can. I know those four things I can relate to. I can see those things at play in my life. And I don't say those things to pour down judgment on anyone or expose anybody. You know, we're not going to make you stand up on your seat and say, oh, you're the cynic in the room. That isn't going to happen. But Paul says this in verse 13 of Ephesians 5, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. We want to bring things into the light. Because we want to be people who aren't sleeping. We want to be people who are awake. We want to be people who are awake to what the Lord's doing, fully awake. 
And so before we think about the gifts that the Holy Spirit pours upon us, and we're going to have plenty of time to do that in the coming weeks, some of us, I believe, just need to get our breath back. Some of us need the space to just breathe again. To breathe fresh life of the Holy Spirit into our lives again. And so I want to just turn to one last passage of Scripture, Ezekiel 37. And you know, the context of Ezekiel is that Israel, God's people, they've chosen idolatry. They've, they've turned their back upon God. They've turned their back on him. They've, they've carved for themselves breathless idols um, that have no breath, idols that um, don't deliver what they promise. And God's people have fallen asleep. And the prophet Ezekiel, he, he says this, he says, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons and you will uh, make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, though there was a noise, a rattling sound. There was a stirring. There was an unrest. There was a sense of desperation. Something's got to change. And these bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it that this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain, that they may live So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army, a vast ecclesia, a vast people of God, a vast called out one. And so this morning, as we acknowledge what today is about, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the day the Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon the people of God. I really believe the word of the Lord to us is wake up. Wake up, sleeper. 
raised from the dead. And the light of Christ will shine upon you, will be upon you. And so maybe you're thinking, you know what? I recognize some of those things. I recognize cynicism in my heart. I recognize disappointment. I know I'm carrying those things, and I know they're causing me to sleep. They're creating a sleep in me that I don't know where it's come from, and I don't want to stay there anymore. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you to stand right now, and we're going to pray. Why don't you stand?